MLHS podcast. My name's Ian Tullock. I'm here with Anthony Petrielli. How you doing, man? We're officially getting back into the swing of things. It's nice to have hockey games again. I don't want to complain too much, but these West Coast games kill me. And I know no one loves hearing media people or bloggers or whoever complain about these things, but staying up that late to watch a team get goalied, it's so not rewarding. <laughs> writing those post-game report cards against a borderline AHL team. I, I get that that's part of an 82-game slog, and there are going to be nights like that. I just know how I feel the next morning, and it's not great. Yeah, I don't want to complain, though, because who knows when we're going to just, they're just going to stop having games, if at all. But if they do, I don't want to look back being being like, ah, oh, you know, I couldn't believe I was complaining about the games that actually were happening because... There was a point in peak lockdown. I was like, I'll give anything to watch a hockey game at this point. Like Columbus versus Minnesota, done. Let me know. I just, I need a hockey game on the television. I need to play a hockey game. I need to watch a hockey game. I need to have a cold beer too. I want to see Joshua Hosang in the Olympics. I want to see Nick Abruzzesi, Matthew Nyes, all those young prospects who are on Team USA that got announced today. Kind of excited for that, to be honest. Owen Power intrigues me to watch because he's unreal and I have a lot of time to watch that guy play hockey. But man, that USA roster, <laughs> that that was bad. I mean, some of the young players on that roster intrigue me a little bit, but then there's also guys like Nick Shore on the roster that do not intrigue me. Then again, Nick Shore was the guy that I believed in for how many years leading up to his time with Toronto and it didn't exactly work out. How did Bobby Ryan not make that team? There are a lot of guys who you're thinking, wait, are they in contention? Do they want to be on the team? Because if he did, you'd think he would be on it. But Is he just insanely out of shape? I mean, did they go meet with him and he was just an absolute fridge and they just went, no way. We can't put this To be guy. honest, I have no idea. But Because he was pushing hard. He wanted to be in the Olympics. He expressed he disappointment. Actually? Yeah, he expressed disappointment to not be there. Jeez. I don't get it, but... The other thing I don't get is the game that we just watched last night. Yeah, let's talk about it. So there were a lot of questions about getting goalied, and this seems to happen to the Leafs a lot. And is this something that is Leafs exclusive when it comes to getting goalied by a guy whose name you've never heard before? And just as someone who's really dived into the research in hockey and looking at how wild swings are and save percentage from one game to the next, I'd like to say that this happens a lot. I know that as Leafs fans... When you watch a team shoot two percentage in the playoffs or their best players go cold late in the series, you're tired of hearing the save percentage, shooting percentage excuse. That's not something you want to hear. And I totally understand that. But it's a part of the game. Luck is a part of the game. Randomness is a part of the game. And goaltending is a part of the game that we're still not really that good at explaining. And it happens when a guy whose name that neither of us can spell, pronounce, or realistically remember. A week from now, I bet you no one even remembers the guy's name. So... I don't want to take too much out of a game like that, but I also am fine admitting that the Leafs outplayed that team and lost. It's going to happen. 
it's the sport. And I feel like sometimes people have a tough time accepting that. Yeah, I don't want to talk about that game too much. I really don't want to give it a bunch of airtime because I think it's a waste of time. That shit happens. The Leafs obviously dominated them. Goalie played well. I mean, when he made the sequence of saves towards the end of the second, I just started laughing at that point. I was like, all right, this guy's blacking out. He's having a night. Good for him. This is that that was a highlight of their season. That building was more full than it usually is, which was still embarrassingly empty. They were at home. Their goalie blacked out. They're going to look back on that game as legitimately one of the highlights of their season. It happens. It would have been nice if the Leafs could even at least squeak a point out of it, but I don't really think it means anything one way or the other. Conversely, conversely, I was much more concerned watching them play Colorado and Vegas. Vegas absolutely tilted them. And they were missing, according to Pete DeBoer, eight regulars. And they just absolutely crushed them. Now, Colorado didn't do it to the same extent, but anyone watching the third live knew that what was about to happen. There was, I don't know how you felt. I was watching, I was just waiting for them to tie it. See, I didn't have the same sense of impending doom. It didn't feel great. And you felt a barrage of scoring chances happening. Kale McCarr might be the MVP this year. I know a defenseman doesn't typically win that award, but he's scoring at a 45 plus goal pace right now. Some of the stuff he's doing is a human highlight reel with his skating ability. The biggest concern for me is when you're leading in the third period and you're the Toronto Maple Leafs, who you've turned to in years past is Jake Muzzin, and you don't trust him in those circumstances as much anymore. Him and Justin Hall got a lot of minutes against McKinnon and company, and they got absolutely shelled at 5-on-5. Five five. That's a concern. Muzzin looked much better in the Arizona game. Now, it's the Arizona Coyotes who are missing a bunch of players, so you don't want to take too much out of that. But at the same time, I'm, I'm looking at these players on a night-to-night basis, and I'm trying to look for certain things that I know are going to be repeatable in the future. One thing I did like about Muzzin in his most recent game is that he seemed to be defending the rush a bit better. His gap looked better. He looked more composed. So if that's something he can get going for a few games in a row here, that's definitely something to keep an eye on because the bigger problem has been him this season. The rest of the Leafs have been dominant at five on five. If you look at their metrics, they're top five in the league in a lot of the key metrics, but when Justin, not Justin, when Jake Muzzin is on the ice alongside Justin Hall, they're getting killed at five on five and they need to do a better job at tilting play in the right direction. And we saw him start to do that, but I don't know how much I trust him to continue that level of play given what we've seen this year. So I do want to talk about the defense, but before dig into that a little bit, because I think that could go on for an extended period of time. I was a little bit concerned with the forwards as a whole while they were getting just caved in by both those teams in the third, because they didn't have anyone go out. Like at some point, especially to the level that Vegas just completely, I mean, one side of the ice was clean. Toronto had nine shots in the final 45 minutes of regulation. They didn't have a line that you could throw out there to just go have a shift in the ozone. They didn't have a guy go out there and have a shift that tried to kind of swing the game. It was it was basically just rolling over, just getting rolled over, shift after shift after shift. There was zero pushback from the group as a whole. And I found that to be... I think there's a difference. I think people get worked up because they lost to Arizona and Arizona stinks and blah, blah, blah. 
And to me, that's just that's the ebbs and flows of a season. Goalie blacks out, has a night. I think you're playing the result in that sense. If you actually watched the game, you know who was the better team in that game. Like, let's not be silly about what happened there. You don't even need to watch the game. Just look at the XG. Toronto had 5.6 expected goals in that game. Just look at the shots. And scored once. I mean, you could look at anything and it would be indicative of who's carrying the play. Time of possession. But the Vegas and, and you know, the, the tough thing is, and, and this will be the thing to kind of reconcile and sort through if you're, if you're Toronto and especially if you're Dubas and co is the Leafs just haven't played hockey over the past month. They really haven't. And they're not the only ones. No, but the American teams are getting a little bit more of, of games. They're consistently getting, they're not playing in front of no fans. They, they're they're at a little bit of an advantage if if we're being honest to Canadian it, teams to Canadian yep. teams and the Leafs go into this road trip and they've barely played any hockey and the, and what were the three most recent games that they played going into that it was shit Edmonton team without McDavid shit Ottawa team because whoever they dress it's terrible and then before that it was the December fourteenth game against Edmonton where they just absolutely dummy them. And then, and that was it. And then you go into hostile environment. I thought it was a little bit interesting. We'll call it that Keith made a point of noting how loud the building was. I don't think this group traditionally over the years has seemed to handle that well. You know, for some reason it's a building gets loud. The other team gets going they never really seem to have anything to kind of kill the momentum. Maybe that's an environmental thing of playing in the Scotiabank Arena, which historically hasn't been very loud, especially on weeknights. If you've ever been, it's it's a bad atmosphere. As a, as a fan of sports, it's not loud. I would never go to a weekday game in Toronto for money. I would go. I would take free tickets. Oh, see, I was going to say, I've done it in the past because of money, because it's cheaper. So I've done it. But the in-rink experience isn't very fun to be around if i'm paying to go to a game if i get free tickets sure i'll go to a weekday game obviously but if i'm paying money out of pocket it's only for a weekend game just just for that reason so i don't know so so the point of all that is to say i do feel bad for the leafs they're probably not at peak conditioning and you you need a little bit of get your game back when you just played that little hockey in such an extended period of time and then you go in and you play teams that are rolling, right? That is a tough ask of them. And when I watched the Colorado game, I thought I thought the Leafs looked unreal in the first period. I thought Matthews looked like the best player in the league tenfold. I thought he also looked like that in the Arizona game. Yeah, but that's Arizona, so whatever. I think a lot of guys would have looked sick in that game. I mean, it's still a game where you need to show up and play well, and he was phenomenal defensively, had a million scoring chances. <laughs> I would say it was still a game, yes, but whether it was an NHL game, I don't know if I would give them that. There were NHL players present. Like Alex Galchenyuk? <laughs> I don't know. Phil Kessel. Phil just floating around waiting to get traded at the deadline. I don't Shane Gostisbehere fired a slap shot at one point. It was fun. Point being is Colorado <laughs> sitting there going, maybe they're just a little bit out of shape. Maybe that like they're trying to get their legs back. They're missing three regulars. Tough spot. Okay. Second half of the game didn't go their their way, but they got a point out of it. All things considered, the way they handed Colorado's ass to them in Toronto earlier this season, I thought Colorado was going to murder them that game. 
the fact that they got a point out of it and they genuinely looked better than them than them for about half the game, great. Vegas, and then they go into that, they get the lead, but they just got absolutely shellacked for so long in that game that that one, even though they won, technically... I was going to say, can we give them credit for at least coming out early and scoring a few goals and giving themselves a lead, giving themselves a bit of a cushion? Because that's something you do need to do to win hockey. Yeah, they, they do get some credit for that. I just, if if we're going to talk about, you know, on one hand, or sit there and be like, okay, if you, if you do what you did against Arizona, you're going to win that game nine times out of ten. If you're getting caved in for 45 minutes, you're going to lose that game nine times out of ten. Yep, bad process. Right? And that that's my and that's a good team that they did it against. A team that wasn't fully healthy, but still a good team. I don't know if that Vegas team as currently constructed without a lot of star players, how good is that team? Is that a true talent 95 point team? I don't even know if it is. Yeah, that that's a tough one. I thought Petro looked unreal. I mean, he was unreal. He was the best player on the ice, I thought, in that game. And Mark Stone picking off passes in the neutral zone. It's have you seen any of Dmitry Filipovich's mixtapes on Mark Stone? I know I love Mark Stone. He wasn't great though. Just a wizard in the neutral zone at picking off passes. Marshall's good. That that's still a good team, I would say. They still have a good goalie horse. My on. point is it's not the true juggernaut Vegas team that you think of because of how many players they're missing, how many key important players. Yeah, I just find it funny because people seem to freak out that they blew the four one lead against Colorado. And that they lost to Arizona. But no one's really saying a word about what happened in Vegas. But to me, that was the most troubling game of the three. By far. I don't even actually care what happened against Arizona. I actually just find it funny. It happens. By doing the Leafs report cards, my job is naturally overreacting to a small sample. And my brand over the last few years has been not overreacting to a small sample. I want to be the large sample guy. I want to be the data-driven analyst who tries to take the randomness and the noise out of the equation and just focus on the aspects of play that I know are repeatable. And that's why, like you mentioned, if you get outshot and outchanced for a 45-minute stretch, it's not very good. And that's why in the Arizona game, even though Sheldon Keefe afterwards is saying, look, you need to create your own luck and we weren't getting enough screens, we weren't getting enough traffic in front, if you're coaching a team and they lose, naturally you're going to say some things afterwards to try to get them to play better the next game. That's just your job, and I'm not coaching this team. I'm analyzing them from afar, and when I do that, I'm going to say things that I can observe based on the information in front of me, and that is that they outplayed the team and they didn't win, and sometimes that happens in hockey. So I don't want to take too much out of their last two or three games, but that's that's really the only sample we have of recent hockey. So there are some other aspects I'd like to talk about. The line combinations are something that really intrigued me right now because obviously with Mitch Marner out of the lineup, it's forced Andre Kasha into a bigger role. And I'm a huge Andre Kasha fan. That's been noted many times on this podcast. I've wanted to see what he could do with better talent because I've always liked him as a puck carrier, always liked him as a feisty little puck retriever kind of guy. When he plays alongside Austin Matthews and Michael Bunting, that line works. It's made me wonder if you can stack a second line with a Nylander, Tavares, Marner, or maybe get cash on that second line with a Nylander and Tavares. I just, I really like what he's providing in that top six, and I think he can give you a bit of an offensive jolt. So curious what your thoughts are on Toronto's lines after the last few games. Uh, so I don't know if you saw, I wrote about this a little bit this week, and basically, Mike, and anyone who's read anything that I've 
written over the past X amount of years. Anyone who's listened to this podcast knows that I'm a proponent for spreading it out across three lines. I think at that at some point it's worth a shot. It's I think Florida's having a ton of success doing it with Reinhardt on one line, Huberto on another line, and Barkoff on the other. They lead the NHL in quality chances. They come at you wave after wave. It's fun to watch. They look sick, and Hornquist will just chill on their fourth line sometimes. He's still a pretty good player. A lot of talent spread throughout four lines on that team. And I, and I really like that model. Where and I, So I think it's worth experimenting for the Leafs, especially in a regular season. So I'm never going to say no to that. At the same time, at the end of the day, I, just, I look at who they're going to have to play, and you're going to have to go... Th- through at least one of Boston or Tampa as well. And that means a point Kucher offline. And that means a Bergeron Marchand, probably Pasternak line. Although they have had Pasternak with Hall on the second line centered by Eric Hall on that seems to be working for them right now. I don't know if they're going to keep that up come playoff time, but either way, pretty, pretty elite top lines. And I just, I don't think, I don't think it's good enough to say Matthews go out there with bunting and Kasha against those lines. I don't. Okay. And you're thinking playoffs here. You're thinking long game. You're, you're saying in the regular season, sure, it's fun, test some things out. But when you actually get into game one of the playoffs, are you going to go power on power? Or are you going to try to spread your talent a little bit? What are your thoughts on doing it a bit differently home versus away? if you have last change and being able to uh, tinker with things a little bit there. I think there's some value in that. And I also, when I think about the, and again, you try not to take too much out of it, but you, you do have to put at least a little thought into what happened. When I think to those Colorado Vegas games where I said in the third period, the Leafs had nothing on offense. They made zero push. They had no pushback whatsoever. And I think to myself, well, gee, wouldn't it be nice if your two best players were together? I mean, that's that's the kind of those are the moments when you're getting shelled. Are you referring to Austin Matthews and William Nylander? Because I've got Nylander ahead of Marner this year. That's <laughs> we won't get into that, but we'll, but but <laughs> Marner and and Matthews are a better combo. They they've statistically been a better combo together than Matthews and Nylander. I just want you to put some respect on William Nylander's name after he wasn't in a tweet that the Toronto Maple Leafs put out for all-star voting. And I found that absurd, frankly. Are you mad at the team? I don't know who puts these tweets out, but William Nylander's having a career best year. Marner's having a real down year. And Marner's on the all-star ballot instead of Nylander. Seems a bit... Yeah, it's a personal attack on you. Someone tweeted that from the Leafs account, clicked tweet and said, fuck you, Ian. No, it's what... uh, (laughs) But point being is, I think at the end of the day, look, playoffs is all about best versus best, and it's about winning your matchups. I don't think the Leafs' path to ultimate success is saying, Matthews, can you go out with bat- with Bunting and Kasha and try to hedge against Kucherov and Point, and we'll pray to God that Matt, that Tavares, Marner, and Nylander below that will make up for it. See, I think you need to give Michael Bunting more credit for what he's done this year alongside Austin Matthews because that pairing... I really like Bunting. He's really growing on me. I thought he was really impressive. But it's a large sample. It's a large sample of them dominating play at 5-on-5 and him producing at a top 6 rate. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's a large sample. We're not even halfway through the season, but... Okay, but my point is it's not just a 50-minute sample at this point. It's it's those two being attached at the hip basically all year 
and doing really well. Do you think, do you think bunting is even remote? Do you think Matthews bunting is even remotely on par with Point Kucherov as a duo? That's a loaded question because you know it's not. Yeah, obviously. And do you think they're on par with Bergeron Marchand? I think Matthews is better than all the players you've mentioned. So I think the combination of Matthews and Bunting can be better than those two. I don't. Because of how good Austin Matthews is. And then I look to and I say Boston has McAvoy to go with them and Tampa has Hedman. And I really like Riley, but he's not as good as those guys. I think you're just... I like Morgan Riley this year. I think you're diluting it. And and that's not. I don't think that's the way to go. And I think you're underselling what TJ Brody does for that top pair. No, I'm I'm not trying to undersell anything that they do. I'm just saying like McAvoy and Hedman are cream of the cream. But it's just the reality. Riley Riley's uh in, in the next tier down from that. Like he's he's up there. He's close. I no, I agree, but he's not he's not with them. So you're already saying here's a little bit of a step back there. And now you're going to say... But who's Hedman's partner and who's McAvoy's partner? Because I think the Riley-Brody pairing is arguably better than Tampa's top pair. Boston's top pair with Matt Grizzlick and Charlie McAvoy. You're not going to hear any arguments from me. That, that pairing's absurd. That pairing's filthy. Yeah, Grizzlick is, is low-key sick. And when they share the ice with Pasternak, Marsha, and Bergeron, watch out. Yeah. That's, they're going to be in the offensive zone. And, and my... And my it, so I... So I take your point of spreading the lines out. I'm, I would be intrigued to see it. Fascinated. I think the Leafs would be doing themselves a disservice to not try it and have a few tricks up their sleeve come playoff time. But at the end of the day, let's not make any mistakes. If the Leafs are going to win in the playoffs, it's not going to be in spite of their best players and moving around the cash and buntings of the world to top units. It's going to be because Matthews and Marner and co finally broke through. Like you need your stars to be stars. Yeah, but what if what if Nylander, Tavares, Marner breaks through and scores a bunch of goals while Austin Matthews carries two other players to elite results, similar to how we've seen Crosby do it? I don't think he would though. I think he can. I want to. I want to see him try. He's done it so far in his last few games. I'm okay. I'm okay to see it. Did he do it against the McKinnon line? Okay. Well, he did it. Okay. Did it against Arizona. <laughs> that doesn't count. He did it against <laughs> Vegas without Pacioretty or Eichel. He's done it all season. He's playing at a selkie level. He's on a pace to score 60 goals. We've never seen a player score at a 50 goal rate and be in selkie consideration. What he's doing is special. And it's, it is. And I don't want to take anything away from it. But watching those things happen over a diluted schedule of varying degrees of good teams is one thing. And then, but you, people have to remember the Leafs are not in an ordinary division. The top four in the Leafs division is disgusting. Like possibly like what seven of the best teams in the league are four of them are in the Leafs division. Florida might be the best team in the league right now. Tampa, you have to give them credit for what they've done the last two years. Boston's having a weird down year and, but they still are the Bruins, right? Anything underlying is unreal. Their goaltending has been dog shit. They've signed Rask. I like let's Boston. It looks sick to me. And I've watched a ton of Boston games lately. They they look really good. Boston's structure, Boston's talent, yeah, Boston's depth. That's fair. And they're probably going to make a move at the deadline. They know their top guys are old. They're not going to sit there and chill. You know they're going to be buyers. So Dom has them projected to have 104 points right now in the standings. That's a pretty decent team for my money. Yeah, so all that to say is, yeah, I think if they were playing, like, I don't know, the Rangers in the playoffs, yeah, I think you could probably get away with a number of things. 
The Rangers don't scare me at all. Yeah. I know Shesterkin scares me, but that team's bad at five on five. Yeah, but what you're looking at in the Leafs division is just heavyweights. And I think ultimately, if you're going up against heavyweights, you need to put your best foot forward. As much as I like Kasha, and I think he looked about as good as I thought he would there. And that was a line that I totally pumped that they should throw out there months ago. And I'm happy we got to see it. We know that it can be a thing. But at the end of the day, it's a heavyweight fight and your heavyweights need to be at the top and they need to be going against each other. That's the only way you're getting out of it. So here's my counter argument is that I think the heavyweights of Tavares and Nylander, when they play with Kerfoot, they're no longer heavyweights at five on five. They're getting outshot. And that's a problem. I know pucks are going in and no Kerfoot's producing an all time career high rate in even strength point production. I don't think it's going to last. I don't think this is who Alex Kerfoot has ever been. I don't think it's going to be who he continues to be. I've been <laughs> screaming about this for a while. And, you know, the the trade Kerfoot on this podcast could be something I, just, I guess I continue to say it until the cats come home. But the reason I want to see them either get Kasha or Marner on that line is because I think you need to change something up. Because I think that combination of three players, Kerfoot, Tavares, Nylander, that's not a good enough play driving line to go up against Boston's top six or Florida's top six. I think you need to improve it. What would Marner look like reunited with Tavares alongside William Nylander in a career year? That might be an absolutely terrifying line. And then, oh yeah, you also get to throw out the Bunting-Matthews combination. And maybe instead of Kasha, maybe it's the player that you trade for at the deadline. Maybe it's another really good top six forward. Yeah, I think, I look, the, the regular season's for experimenting. That's why, I, look, I know a lot of fans have been hurt by the team over the years. I think that's why we see the reactions that we do after they lose a game against Arizona that they clearly dominated. I think a lot of Leafs employees have been hurt by that team. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think, and I get it, but every loss doesn't have to be a mass referendum on this team where we then sit there and dissect what's wrong with them. Sometimes you're going to lose games, a two game season. It's going to happen. You're going to get shit like what happened. Good teams lose games. And I say this sometimes with the report cards when John Tavares has a really bad game or TJ Brody has a bad game. Good players have bad games. It happens. It is what it is, right? Let's, let's not go nuts on it. That said for the Leafs, the Leafs are in the playoffs. It was the same thing that we said when they started like shit. I was like, I'm not really worried about them making the playoffs still. Dom has them at 100% playoff likelihood. So that you'd need something catastrophic to happen. You'd need Campbell and Matthews to go down tomorrow. So the so the regular season is just a giant experiment for them as far as I'm concerned. So why not try the Marner and Tavares Nylander line? Like, I don't care. Do I think it'll ultimately work? No. Do I think that they will need to have Marner up with Matthews and they're going to have to be incredible if the Leafs are going to get somewhere finally in the playoffs? Uh, yeah, I do. But who cares? Try it. Get some data on it. What's the worst that happens? Sucks. And you go, okay, we know. Or it's sick and you go, all right, now we have something to think about. That's 100% how they should be approaching this. We, we've been talking a lot about the top six and as we should, because the top six is where you make your bones. The top six is where games are won and lost for the most part. The bottom six still matters. And when Pierre Engvall's out of the lineup, the bottom six has looked rough. They miss his puck transporting ability. They miss his ability to carry the puck from D zone to O zone. Poor Jason Spezza. I feel really bad for the poor guy. He is playing with Kyle Clifford some nights, Nick Ritchie a lot of nights, and they just can't transition the puck. So I also just don't think that Spezza has looked that good for the past like month and change. 
I agree. He's That's a playing, fair point. He's playing with with players that limit him. But I've always said I don't think Spezza is like a true center at this point in his career. And I think a large part of it, he wasn't playing center at the beginning of the season when he looked sick. Well, last year he was playing center in sheltered minutes on the fourth line. Yeah. And he takes faceoffs. But I guess if you're talking about the responsibilities defensively that come with being a center. Look, there's nothing easier in the entire league than being a winger. It's the easiest position by far. You can just float up and down the wing and score. The center has to take care of all the D zone work. There's interchanging roles of F1, F2, F3. I think you're underselling it in the modern game. Even even though even though they are. It doesn't matter. The winger, if at the end of the day you end up on your wing, the winger doesn't have to circle low and win the battles below the goal line to the same level. You don't have to be attentive to the same level in front of the net. You're definitely not. If a winger can blow the zone on occasion, but a center can't just up and blow the zone, not in the NHL. Right? There's Steven Samkos. There's more. <laughs> that's why he doesn't play center. And him and John Cooper always <laughs> fought each other on it. Right. But then he would move to wing and it's just like, yeah, I'm going to float up and down the wing and just crank bombs off the rush. And he was sick at it. I'm trying to think of other centers who float out of the zone. Uh, Sean Monahan, your favorite player. Yeah. 4C. Uh, the other guy who used to do it, but now he got moved to the wing too. Claude Giroux. You know, it's just like you want to you want to blow the zone for offense. Go play wing. And not, I'm not saying Spezza plays like that because he doesn't. But what I am saying is Spezza is he definitely takes the defensive responsibilities of center seriously and he does them. And because of that, it limits his offense. And I don't really see Jason Spezza actually playing defensive center in the league anymore. Just to go out there and try to get a goal. He's at his best when he winds up, when he kind of curls back in his own end with speed and then starts attacking up this. Whether or not he has the puck, he's calling for it when he does it. And you get him the puck with speed, and he's really good at gaining the zone once he loads up for speed. The problem is you need to give him options. And when his options are Kyle Clifford and Nick Ritchie, you're not gaining the zone. I think he's at one five-on-five point over those last, like, 14 games or something. But he has, like, four or five power play points in that time, including that three-point game against Minnesota when he looks sick. So I think, and when he started the year, first month or so of the season, he led the league in slot pass completions. Last year, he led the team in points per sixty. And I hear what you're saying; he hasn't looked as good in the last month or so. And I think part, and I, and and he would be another one where I I sit there and go, how bad is this break for a vet, for an old guy to just kind of have to stop? And that, you know, they want to play. They, they don't want to. It's get, almost like an off season. Yeah. It's, it's trying to get your that, legs back again. That's not good for, that's not good when you're older. You don't, you just want to keep going. You don't want to have to have a legitimate stop the way that they have. At the same time, does he need to be playing on back to backs? No, but they're missing guys, I guess. So they were. Does any player over the age of 30 in the NHL need to be doing that? But I, I bring this up every time and it's an old conversation. Yeah. So I, I think. I, my goal would be to get him back on the wing in some way. Even if it's Engvall just playing center for him, then fine. Right? But we've also, to we know we've talked about this a little before too, the, the camp Kasha line has generally looked its best when Engvall's on the other side. So suddenly Engvall becomes a little bit more of a noteworthy chess piece to use in that bottom six. McCabe's kind of a better version of Engvall, isn't he? Not with the puck. Which I think I don't know. I, I've I've liked him transitioning the puck lately, and and so I don't mind him. But he's great at chipping it in deep and getting it back, but he's not great at 
like skating it through the neutral zone. He's shown some flashes here and there. See, to me, it depends on how much speed he's built up. But I guess you're saying Engvall is a more reliable puck carrier? Through the neutral zone. When he's like... I love hearing Pierre Engvall praise on this podcast. This is just giving me a big smile right now. I feel great. I, I just wanted to say with the caveat of like when he's not being Pierre Engvall, you know? Like when he's when he's, <laughs> when he's he's good and like normal, then yeah, he's, he's good. But when he's Pierre Engvall... And the neck is out. Did we just say everyone has a bad night? Yeah. Well, how come Pierre Engvall's not allowed to have a bad night, but other players are? You have to ask Sheldon that question because when Pierre has a, <laughs> a bad a bad night, you know he's name dropping him in the post game. I look every time, guaranteed. Oh, imagine if he treated Mitch Marner that way. Imagine brutal. So it would be interesting too, though, because we talk about. So we look at some of the line suggestions you've thrown out, which I what I also thought was interesting is Mikheyev moves up to the top six. And three or four shifts in, I was I just went, this is what it always looks like when he moves into the top six. Bad. <laughs> and I love the guy, but he's just not a top six forward. His rookie season, him and Tavares had some things going there. He was the digger in the corners. Tavares is looking like that Tavares who lifted Kyle Lukposo, P.A. Parento, insert winger to a to a 30-goal season. I love Mikheyev. I hate saying not super positive things about him. But I just, I don't think he has the skill to keep up with those guys and make plays. The brain, the, it's kind of the Kasperi Kapanen of the, wait, no, you can't play with Matthews because you don't see the game as quickly as he does. You can't read plays on three on twos like he can. He doesn't. Every time he moves up, it ends up looking bad. Now, if they're protecting a lead, let's say they're up 2-1 playoff game, Keith's going to sit there and say, am I going to put Kerfoot out with Tavares and Nylander? Absolutely not. Mikheyev, for sure. But when you're looking... Wait, wait, when you're protecting a lead? Yes. Kerfoot's been one of their best penalty killers this year. Mikheyev is better than Kerfoot defensively. Kerfoot's been so good on the penalty kill this year. You know me, I'm not the biggest Kerfoot fan in the world. But five on five, Mikheyev all day, twice on Sundays... We will not even have a debate about this. There's no chance. Four check, back check, pay check. He's much better in those respects. I'll give you that. The guy's a dog, and he's way stronger than Kerfoot, too. That's his game. That's where he makes his money, is by being annoying on the four check and back check and winning puck battles, getting the puck back for your team. Yeah, so if, if that's the kind of time that they want to move him up, then great. But when it's 0-0 and they need a goal, I just I don't see it. I don't. I've very rarely ever seen it with him. In those situations, it's not the end of the world. I just ultimately, I look at him and I say, he's a really good third liner. That's what I think of when I think of McKay. I think this guy's a really good third liner. If he's on your third line, you have a really, really good team. If he's on your second line, you might have some problems. You can have a bit of trouble scoring, probably. Yeah, there's there's always guys like that where you sit and go, we're okay with him if he's on the second line. But in a, in a best case scenario, we'd have an actual guy there that bumps him to the third line which is where he'll be most effective for us what you were saying about Mikheyev the things that frustrated you the most about playing him in the top six his inability to complete passes off the rush his inability to read the game fast enough to know what the next best play was that's where Michael Bunting's really impressed me and that's why I want to give him praise for being able to keep up with Matthews off the rush because I did not think he'd be able to I assumed that the puck would land on Bunting's stick on a three on two and he'd make the wrong decision. He'd shoot it when he should pass it, or he'd pass it when he should shoot it. 
And he's been making the right decisions for the most part. And I think he's been an integral part to fitting in on that top line. Obviously not the driver. The MVP candidate down the middle is the play driver. But Bunting's been a complimentary fit on those lines. Whereas when someone like Ilya Mikheyev or Pierre Engvall jumps up into the top six, they're not reading the game off the rush the same way. And that's where I want to give someone like Bunting a lot of credit. Yeah, he... When we talk about the Colorado and, and Vegas game, he was a guy that stood out to me in a good way because against good teams, like I said, you, you can't really, in a regular season, you kind of have to like squint through the ebbs and flows of it and the varying levels of quality of competition, which is drastic throughout the league. As much as they talk about parity, the parity's fake. It's the point system. It's I don't know. The, the research will show you that it washes out for the most part in the regular season. I know, but I... I don't, I think that that's why we have such a hard time still predicting playoffs largely. I think the gap between. I, th- I think the whole goalie part of this sport maybe plays into that a bit. That plays a role for sure. For <laughs> sure. Um, all that to say is I thought Bunting looked really, really good against those teams. He, he looks like a player. Like kudos to him. He's still going. And it's a little thing, and I know it's inconsequential to some, but I'm a big fan. He's the first guy in every scrum. I have a lot of time for it, for that. He's going to... I'm curious to see in the playoffs, late in the game, who he can get to take a two-minute minor. Who, If he can get Brad Marchand off the ice. You know, if he can get someone else really good off the ice. I feel like that's stopped, though, the last little bit. And I don't know if it's just because they haven't been playing enough, but he hasn't seemed to be drawing penalties the same way of late. Yeah, it doesn't count when he also picks one up against Antoine Roussel. Yeah, and he would... And that... See, that was an interesting one, too. I'm not going to get into some full breakdown on it, but he dropped his... Roussel dropped his gloves and was ready to fight, and Bunting didn't want any of that. Bit of a reputation call, I think, there, when it comes to Bunting being a shit disturber and the ref going, okay, I'm taking both of you. But again, let's not over analyze refereeing decisions because we'll lose our minds. We're 37 minutes into the podcast here. What I really wanted to talk about was the Leafs power play. We didn't get a chance to touch on it last week. Do you want to talk about the power play with Marner or without Marner? Because I think this is where Leafs Nation gets all riled up saying, oh my God, Marner comes onto this unit and he ruins the flow of things. All of a sudden the spacing goes away and there's a there's one less shot thread on the ice and he's on the wall when Nylander should be on the wall. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on this because... I think it's good to have talent out there. I think if you have a player who over his last three seasons has produced at a 95 point rate, it's good to have that guy on the ice. Even if he's shot 0% the last couple of years, I I still think it's good to have Marner out there, but I understand why people will see a Jason Spezza on the top unit for a small sample of games. And all of a sudden they're firing pucks and there's more one timers. I have respect for that because tactically I understand the value of it, but like you said, when the chips are down and you're in the playoffs and you need a goal, you're going to have Nylander, Tavares, Matthews, Marner, and Riley on the ice, realistically. So I don't know what we're talking about here. So I don't want to... We just talked about how the regular season is largely an experiment for the Leafs at this point. So I don't want to go nuts on it. And I hope that it was really just an experiment. But I thought the decision to just put Kasha on the power play over Spezza was interesting in and of itself because... It's fine. If you want to try it, see what it looks like. Sure. Go nuts. Whatever. I'm not going to fight them on that. But at the end of the day, if they were to sit there and say, we we put him there because we think that that was the best possible option, I would think that they're nuts to put Kasha there over Spezza. Kasha played goal line 
Whereas Spezza typically plays the right dot on the power play, right half wall. It, it doesn't matter. They looked too good with Spezza there, zipping pucks around. But you reconfigure it. That, but all that to say is, I didn't think that this comment, this throwaway thing that I almost wrote, uh, would get as much uh, traction as it seemed to. But on Monday, I had wrote that they're, they're simply, they're not going to take Marner off the power play because he makes $11 million. And a lot of people seem to get really offended by that comment. And I'll say this. I know that that, I know that that wasn't the specific thing that you were getting at with your question, but I think it's nuts to not factor that in. You're simply not paying an off a guy who's expected to produce points, $11 million and saying you're not on our top power play unit. You're not. And I know people have this, you know, they, maybe they played minor sports or whatever, and, and they're taught team first and all of these things. This is professional hockey. These are professional athletes. You are not looking at an $11 million guy and saying power play two. You're not. I'm sorry. You're not. There's no world. This is Carmelo Anthony laughing in the press conference when they ask if he's willing to come off the bench. Hey, they asked if I come off the bench. It's not. It's. It's beyond that, and especially in this market. I'm, you couldn't get away with it. And you know what? The power play looked like shit the past few games. I didn't hear anybody complaining then. And the other part to it is the Leafs power play under Marner has been a top five unit this year. It's not like it's been dog shit. They've been a top five unit. His assists per 60 are still elite. I know the goals have been non-existent, but he's still a phenomenal passer. I know that he's not scoring much, and I know that you could largely argue that they're producing in spite of him, almost. But at the end of the day, you're not going to sit an $11 million guy while the unit's top five. You have no leg to stand on. Washington's power play is like 28th right now. Are they going to sit there and take Ovechkin off? Be like, you know what? The one-timer's not working that much anymore. Backstrom's not scoring. I'm going to have to take him off. Yeah, you think Backstrom's coming off that unit? Of course not. Like, Let me get into the tactics of things here because that's what I really wanted to dive into. So when you have those five guys out there, where is everyone standing? At least when you win a face-off, let's say, like the predetermined aspect of things. Because sometimes when you gain the zone with speed and there's moving parts... You just kind of sit into the 1-3-1 and wherever you end up is where you play and then you get a bit of motion going and players are moving around. But when it's a set play off of a face-off, where are the guys standing? A lot of the times they'll have Nylander start at the goal line, Marner start on one of the half walls, Matthews start on one of the half walls, Riley at the point and Tavares in the middle. Do you prefer Marner on the right wall when they start it like that? I'm curious where you want everyone standing because... When things get moving, a lot of the times Nylander will find his way back up to the half wall in a shooting position. Uh, I, I'm wondering if they like him down there because Nylander's shown a willingness to roll out of the corner and become a shooting option up high. Marner, to be effective, he needs to move around that power play. He can't stand in one spot because he's not a stationary one-timer kind of player. He's at his best when he's attacking downhill with speed, faking a pass, and then firing the backdoor pass or finding the feed in the middle of the ice. You're trying to leverage his passing ability at the end of the day. So for you, set face-off, set play, where are you putting everybody? Where are they standing? Marner would, how I would run it, and there was one interesting look at one point when they actually gained the zone, which was a big problem, by the way. I didn't think they would miss Marner as much as they did on that. I thought, 
I wrote a lot about that and I'll, I'll bring it up in a sec, but I'll let you finish your point. Matthews is sneaky bad at, at zone entries on the power play. Kasha was a disaster. That I don't know why that made any sense. I digress. But there was a point where they actually... We should we should touch on that. We'll, we'll get into that more in a sec. There was a point where they actually were able to set it up. I don't know if you remember. And Kasha was in front and Tavares was in the bumper and Nylander and Riley up top and Matthews on his standard half wall. And they zipped it around pretty good and, and almost scored. And I was like, honestly, this is the look. Th- th- this should be the exact same thing with Marner. Mar- Someone's going to have to just sit him down and say, look, like you're going to have to go in front of the net. You have to take a little bit of abuse, but at the same time, you're gonna you're gonna bleed out at points when Matthews has the puck and give him that proper right-handed option down low, and you can make things happen. It'll be almost very similar. You can make one-touch passes from that spot. The uh, passing from below the goal line, it's such an efficient location to make passes it, from. It'll because the next shot that gets taken, it's basically doubled in shooting percentage. I don't know if if you would remember this, but it would almost be very similar to when the Leafs used to have Sundin on the half wall and Kyle Wellwood was down low. You brought this up before and I'm comparing Mitch Marner to Kyle Wellwood, I think there's a gap in skill there. For sure there is. Wellwood was actually sick. He was just lazy. Okay, but I don't think he was a 95 point player. No, of course he wasn't. But he, but I'm saying his skill set worked in that and he, he was a pass first, not much of a shooter, undersized guy. But he was really, really effective down there. And then you have... Right then, you have bleed out options for either Matthews to shoot and Marner's there, or you have Matthews freeze a guy, pass it down low to Marner, who can then one touch it to Tavares in the prime slot. That's a set play that a lot of teams run. Yeah, or you have Nylander dart back door, and you have Marner just whip it across the crease at him. But either way, I I think that's where it's most effective. I love it when Marner and Nylander switch on the power play. I think it's so hard to defend when those two get rolling out of a corner. And then both of them are extremely talented when they have the puck on their stick. Marner is a passer. Nylander is more of a pass shot threat. I don't know if I love starting Marner on the goal line because I I think when he's at his best is he needs to be moving. And if he's standing still, our team's just going to leave him alone for a little bit. Does that still kill your spacing? Or does he become a valuable passer from that spot? I would dare teams to leave him alone. I think that's best case scenario if they leave him alone down there. I think the Leafs should be laughing their ass off if teams leave him alone. You're going to leave Mitch Marner alone? Then you feed it down low to him and, and make him the playmaker from there? Like, I think the discourse on him has gone so far the other way. You're going to leave Mitch Marner alone three feet away from the net? Have fun. Good luck. Just laughing. I'd be laughing on the bench. So let's get back to Matthews and his zone entries, because I think that's a very interesting point. And it's one that I brought up the last couple report cards. Uh, He's had dominant five on five games, and I brought that up. And I think he's been ranked five stars or four stars in those games. But I nitpicked and I said, look, this is an aspect of his game where he's always deferred. He's always been one of the two players that gets the drop pass, but he rarely carries it in himself. This is something you can look up statistically, and it's the case both at 5-on-5 and 5-on-4. When Matthews does choose to take the puck himself, his rate or his success rate at gaining the zone, his efficiency is extremely high, but his volume is low. He rarely decides to take the puck himself over the blue line. He often defers to another player to do it, usually Mitch Marner. When he dictates play himself, he can do it. Some of the best zone entry wizards in the year league over the years have been guys like Yarmir Yager, Mario Lemieux. You can be a big 
giant, not necessarily the fastest guy in the world, but if you have unreal hands, you can just stick handle your way into the offensive zone. There were a few times the other night against Arizona where Matthews did put his head down and decide, screw it. I'm taking this puck over the blue line. I'm gaining this zone. And he did it. And I want to see him do that more often. I think when he plays a bit more selfishly as a puck carrier, as a transition weapon, he's way faster this year than we've seen in years past. He dropped a lot of weight. I know he's been listed at 220 the last few years. He's at 205 this year, and it's made him a faster skater. I want to see him use that speed to blow through the neutral zone, use his puck skills to stick handle around the guy at the line, and then make the next pass afterwards. But make the pass after you gain the zone. Don't make the pass in the neutral zone. You're putting your teammate in a pretty rough spot. I want to see Matthews be the best player on the ice and know it when he dictates play and takes it up the ice. If Michael Jordan were a hockey player, would he pass it to Andre Kasha on a power play zone entry? No way in hell. It was crazy how many times he deferred to him. Or at the first sign of trouble, his initial instinct is, let me throw it over to Kasha. There, <laughs> there were a few times even Kasha got the puck and you just you knew he had no idea what to do because you're just like, I can't believe I have the puck. Well, he's probably also thinking like, dude, you're Austin Matthews. Yeah. Like, take that in. Yeah, <laughs> I think he was surprised to get it. I think he was getting it. He's like, shit i wasn't planning on getting the puck right now like why didn't dump it in the corner top three player in the world why is he passing me the puck on this power play breakout and you could tell he's sitting there he's like the shoulders you could tell he's what the fuck why is the puck on my stick right now which is fair so here's the thing matthews isn't as fast as mcdavid or mckinnon so there's that so it's it's a bit harder for him to wheel up and just blow by everybody but with his added speed and his combination of size, speed, strength, puck skills, I think he should be able to gain the zone if he decides he wants to. And I think often he gets afraid when he sees a few bodies in the neutral zone. He goes, ooh, there's more room over there. I'm going to pass it to the player who has a bit more room. I think you need to be selfish there and go, I'm Austin freaking Matthews. I'm taking this puck over the blue line. And he can do it. It's weird because I, you just, he's not much of a puck carrier though. I mean, he can do it. When I think of his game, I very rarely think of him carrying the puck places. And here's the thing. The efficiency numbers have always been so high, but the volume has been lower. I want to see that volume increase. He, he can do it. He should do it more. I think it's a big part of his game that he should work on. I mean, he's obviously disgusting regardless, but. He might win the Selkie and score 60 goals this year. We're talking about a talented hockey player. It's kind of the whole point here. Yeah, we're, we're. You know, this is this is like the the Heisman winner going back to college, and then his whole, like holes are starting to get poked in his game because you've just seen him for so long. But that you know, that if if there was one thing, if you were going, what do you think Matthews could work on? I'd just say I think he could be a little bit more dominant on the puck in terms of bringing it places on his own and carrying it himself and everything. He gets a second of space, you know. It's a goal. If he gets if if the puck's around him in front of the net and he comes close to it, it's a goal. I'm always interested when the best players in sports decide to add something. You know, when Messi decides he's going to learn how to kick free kicks and become amazing at it. LeBron James develops a post-up game and then decides, oh, okay, you know what? This year I'm going to shoot 40% from three. Sidney Crosby becomes one of the best face-off men in the world. Austin Matthews, as he developed... He developed the one-timer after his rookie year. That was something he didn't have in his bag to start things off. He was just a catch-and-shoot kind of player. Developed the one-timer. Then he became more aggressive in puck battles. I think the last year or two, we've seen him become a truly dominant 200-foot defensive player. 
I think the next step is becoming more of that zone entry specialist where he uses his speed, skill, and gains the zone, just goes for it. That's what we're asking for to take that next step in development. And I think he can do it because I think he's talented enough. Like how often do you really see him if when you think about it, like skate through the neutral zone with the puck on his stick? And breakthrough. Again, I've I've seen the numbers on this. You know me, I'm a chart boy. Not No, not in the power play. I'm talking about five on five now even. It's the same. It's the same at five on five. It's a similar trend. High efficiency, lower volume than you would expect for a player of his caliber. But that was the question, not can he do it. The question was how often do you see it? And it's really not that often. It's not as low volume as an unskilled player. But again, it's when you're looking at the top right of the chart, those are the high volume, high efficiency players. It's guys like McDavid. It's guys like... Barzell, Gaudreau, uh, Nick Ehlers comes to mind. I'm just thinking of charts that I've gone through throughout my life. Nathan McKinnon comes to mind. I want to see Matt Austin Matthews get himself into that category, both at five on five and five on four. But I think specifically five on four, when they drop you the puck, as good as Mitch Marner is, I'm sorry, Austin Matthews, you're a better player than Mitch Marner. You know that. So prove it. Gain the zone. So we're a little, we're approaching an hour here. I know you had some other mailbag questions. Yeah, let's go lightning round here on the mailbag. I put out a tweet asking uh, some of our followers to ask us a few questions. Who scares you the most in the first round and who scares you the least in a potential first round matchup? <laughs> Shit. It, it, <laughs> is, is, there, uh, is there a world where they get a wild card crossover team? Yeah, I, I, you could go with New York Rangers, scary the least because you don't think they're a great five on five team. Literally any crossover team in a wild card would be who doesn't scare me the least. Pittsburgh, Washington, they don't scare you a little bit. Evan Rodriguez going into God mode. I actually think Pittsburgh <laughs> is really good. I think people are really sleeping on them. I think Tristan Jari was god awful in the playoffs last year. And everyone just forgot how good that pit. That pit is really good. I actually don't see a lot of holes in their lineup. The Rodriguez Kapanen line is what the best second line in hockey right now. Just casually got Gino back and he just ripped in two goals right away. I'm like, all right. If Tristan Jari... They still have Chris Letang. They still have John Marino doing well. Brian Dumoulin's historically been an underrated player. That's a good team. Letang's good. They're a good team. They have a, an, a sneaky defense. I think they have depth. Jeff Carter's still a good hockey player. I think that they're a problem. I think if, if Tristan Jari doesn't shit himself again in the playoffs, I could easily see them going to the conference finals. Would not surprise me. See, Jeff Carter's good, but is he Jared Stoll good? He, but he falls in that category of <laughs> once really good player who's not that good anymore. I mean, he is pretty good still. He's, he's better than Jet Stroll. He's more than better than six goals in seventy eight games. Good, yeah. But he's in that category of once really good player, not quite the same. But I would expect a few big goals from him, and he did have some big goals in that series against the Islanders. They literally got goalied by their own goalie. That was all I saw in that series. I'll give. I'll give the boring answer and say Boston scares me the most because I think it's more than just actual hockey Mental. playing ability, which they're very good at. Yeah, I think it's between the years with Boston. I think Florida scares me the most. They're, I think they're the best team, but because there isn't years of history of being beaten up by them in the playoffs, I think that factors in at some point. So one of the weird things with Florida, I'll say, and I don't want to get into a whole thing about why it happened, but I would have really feared them a little bit more with Quinville as the coach. As opposed to brunette. Oh man, uh, that's that's a that's a giant can of worms, dude. But we're not talking about his dismissal, especially with McDavid's comments lately about just completely shrugging off Evander Kane. I'm not saying they shouldn't have done it. All I'm saying is, if Quinville was there, I would be a little bit extra worried. 
rather than this rookie head coach who stepped into the job because they fired the incumbent. And I remember having similar thoughts after Montgomery stepped down from Dallas. It's it's tough because you're trying to objectively analyze a hockey team, but there's other factors that go into evaluating these things than just the on-ice results and the performance. So here, can I can I say... But I still worry about Florida a ton. I, oh, the, I, you should be. Mackenzie Weger is one of the best the, defensemen in hockey, and we don't talk about him enough. The one thing that I'll say about Florida, though, is I wouldn't trust Bob at all. Whereas, I, yeah, not at all. Whereas I bet you that Rask rounds into form and Vasilevsky is the best goalie in the world. So you trust Tuka Rask more than Sergei Bobrovsky? OK, I'm calling you out. I'm, I'm doing it. I trust I trust Rask to get his shit together. <laughs> I trust the goalie who's been performing at a top 10 caliber rate in the NHL this year more than a guy who hasn't been in the NHL for a little bit. Bob is a disaster, man. <laughs> like... Bob's been fantastic this year, man. Goalies, goalies are voodoo, man. How was he last year? And how was he there before that? He was awesome. He just <laughs> flip flops. You just got to catch him on a good year. Goalies, man. I'm not saying that he's he's not talented. I'm just saying I don't trust him, and I think he's earned the lack of trust. This is a terrible lightning round. We were supposed to go quick on these. Uh, oddly enough, the team that scares me the least is Tampa because even though I think they're a phenomenal team, I've always liked the way Toronto plays Tampa. I think it plays to Toronto's strengths and. In, a, in a, a clash of styles, I think it benefits Toronto. I, I just wonder if it becomes Vasilevsky versus Campbell. And Campbell's been great, but Vasilevsky's Vasilevsky. Sorelli it might win the Selkie this year, be in consideration. That's a very good team. All right. The, uh, we got asked a lot about Scott Mayfield. So I wanted to provide some thoughts for you on Scott Mayfield. He got moved up into the top pair with the New York Islanders this year, playing alongside Adam Pellich. Some of the models are giving Pellich the credit for the defense and Scott Mayfield more the credit for moving the puck up the ice and generating more offense. When Scott Mayfield's on the ice, the pucks aren't going in. The goals for are very low right now. But historically, we know that defensemen don't have a big impact on shooting percentages. That's been proven over decades of studies. But the shots and scoring chances are very strong when Scott Mayfield's on the ice against top competition. Now he's playing alongside Adam Pellage in a Barry Trot system. And I think a lot of players can look good in a Barry Trot system. Sorry, system. But he's a right-handed defenseman with good results at five on five on a team that looks like they're struggling and is going to miss the playoffs. Is he the missing piece that you can add at the deadline to solidify your defense? Not selling you. I tried to sell you. I don't think I could the do it. The defense is such a conundrum for me because I really want to believe that Muzzin gets his game together. I really do. But holy cow, is it hard. It is so hard. I mean, we have years. We have years of data. We know he's been good in the past, but there's also the fact that he's injured and he's 32. And um, What is it? Colasar? The Colasar goal against the Leafs. Muzzin, one of the dumbest things I've ever seen him do is a leaf. Just Hole has the guy perfectly angled off on a PK, and he goes and skates at him. I don't, I don't want to overanalyze one goal against here or there. I just, it's not about over. It just, but that it's that's the shit that he's been doing all year. We're just like, this is like mind-blowingly dumb. But I don't think it's dumb Muzzin. I think it's slow Muzzin. I think it's Muzzin getting beat off the rush that concerns you. Ideally, and I still stand by it, and I know everyone's watching the defense and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, 
I, I think that they need another impact forward. I would really love it if Muzzin figured it out and then Hole by extension. And then they could really just focus on adding a forward of significance. I still stand by that. But I do like Scott Mayfield. I think he would obviously help the team. I think he would cost a ton. I don't know. I, I want to know those Dubis Lou phone conversations. I would pay good money to be uh, on mute as a as a three way call in that one. Yeah, that I would sell a little bit of my soul <laughs> to have to hear that call. <laughs> it might only last three seconds. Like you might lose your soul for <laughs> three seconds of a phone conversation. <laughs> but it would be worth it. Can you do a? Do you have a Lou impression? Can you do a Lou voice? When I do my Lou, it's just the mayor from Seinfeld. Or not Seinfeld. Well, Seinfeld. It's the mayor from The Simpsons. My Lou impression is like I'm sitting in a dark room. I answer a phone. Someone tells me something has been completed. All I say is good. I am the mayor of Springfield. (laughs) No, he doesn't say any of that. He just listens. He hears it. He says good. He hangs up and he puts the phone back down. That's it. That's the one word. It's the setting that's the Lou, imp- <laughs> the Lou impersonation. The phone with the red line because it's uh, what's what's the secure line? They, 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 yeah, yeah, the secure line. So they just gave him a red phone wire. <laughs> uh, other rapid questions. All right, uh, is Rasmus Sandin potentially the answer to the Jake Muzzin problem in the future? Sure, but not this season. Why not? Why not this season? Well, yeah, why not? I don't think he's good enough defensively yet. Okay. He played 11 minutes against Colorado. Well, I want to... I was Like, they were watching. They were like, yeah, no. We, you, like, we don't trust you at all. And he got healthy scratched after a bad game. But here's the thing. Justin Hall's had bad games. They don't healthy scratch him as often. I think there's... Uh, I think they're trying to give Hall confidence by playing him a bit more. Oh, I think... I think they're afraid of cutting Muzzin's minutes, of cutting Muzzin's role. And I'd like to see them give him less usage to let him figure it out a little bit and see if Rasmus Sandin can handle some tougher shifts. I want to see a 10-game stretch where Sandin gets top six competition with consistency. If he if he sinks, if he, if he can't do it, okay, but sink or swim, I want to see them try it at least. Like you said, we have how many games left in the season to experiment? Yeah, that's fine. If they want to experiment, go for it. But at the end of the day, I don't think he's the answer. I think moving him up will be a lot like when they moved up Dermot originally. I think it'll be a lot like when Sandine actually played in the playoffs and was serving up Zaz right through the middle of the ice. I think it will be much like that. I think he's, I've said it before, I'll just stick with it. I think he's fantastic in his third line role. I think that's where he should be. And I just, that's that's all I view him as right now. I don't know. That's what people said about Mackenzie Weger. That's what people said about Nate Schmidt. That's what people said about Shea Theodore. So it's, so what people you know, said about Colin Miller. So people said about Travis Dermott. People said about Marc-Andre Bergeron. It goes one way or the other. There are success stories and there are failures. And yes. the other thing I'll say for all those guys you mentioned in comparison to Sandine is they can all skate fast. Um, yeah. Adam Fox. Adam Fox was always going to be disgusting. Everyone knew he was disgusting. Why can't Rasmus Sandine be disgusting in your words? Well, I wouldn't compare him to a guy that's... Adam Fox was insanely touted. The only reason he dropped in the draft is because everyone knew he was going to pull this card. When he was traded in the original 
Dougie Hamilton trade. Under six feet tall, unbelievable passer, not the best skater. Well, I, I, nah, I see similarities in their games. I do, but I think there's a difference between being like a full-on... Fox walked in and was essentially a stud. Sandine... I don't. I wouldn't say that he's done that. They start him off in a third pair role before they moved him up to a second pair role before they moved him up to a top pair role. I don't think those are comparable players. I think that will be something. That okay. If we look back on it in a few years, we'll be like, that was an actual comparison that you made at that point. And I like. I like right? Sandine. Then I'll say I'm an idiot. And I like Sandine. I don't know if he's going to win a Norris. I think he'll be good, but like you just compared him to the guy that won the Norris. Uh, I I see similarities in their games. Like, you think he's Norris good? Uh, well, I don't think he's ever going to get the power play time to to get those points anymore with Riley signing the eight-year extension. But in another universe where he gets that top pair PP, du- PP duty, you don't think Sandine could have a 60 or 70-point year? No, on this team, I think he could, just like Riley did. And that's that, that's the point I'm making. That's fine. I just add, But you're talking about replacing a shutdown guy. And I don't see that. Yeah. And I don't see that for him. You give more of those shutdown minutes to Riley Brody. You let Sandine cook a bit more offensively. And not only would you be giving him that shutdown role, but you'd be putting him on a broken pairing that doesn't have a leader. What him and Lilligren? They got chemistry. Yeah, so you're you're trusting those two guys to be the shutdown pairing. I think I want to see. I it. think shutdown defense is way harder than people give credit for. I don't think you just slap it up on two young guys that. I don't even think they have 100 games combined in the league between them. And they're supposed to be a cup contender. I think that's nuts. I don't know. Braden McNabb and Nate Schmidt had never played top competition before. They did it together in Vegas. And for two years, we're one of the best pairings in hockey. Hey, maybe it happens. I just, I don't see it. But sure, give it a go. It's not the end of the world. I just, to answer your question, no. I don't think that he can do it this year. All right, last one. Who's your, who's your favorite Leafs prospect that no one's talking about? and your least favorite Leafs prospect that everyone's talking about. I think your answer to that last one is Nick Robertson. Yeah, I mean, that's obvious. <laughs> it's always been. Um, I feel like I'm going to take your answer, but it would probably be um, Philip Crawl. Oh, my boy. I liked him in his draft year. He had great puck-moving numbers and great transition D numbers. I saw he just tossed down like a four-point game as well, which caught my eye. I think that that's impressive. I thought that he looked sick in preseason. I thought he looked like a player. But I might cheat here and say Nick Abruzzesi, because I think people are starting to talk about him now that he made the U.S. Olympic team. It's college hockey. But I was not a fan of him when he got drafted. I said on, it wasn't this podcast, but I said on a podcast that guys who have been drafted in their D plus two out of the USHL, like there was like under 5% success rate. So I just didn't think it was a high likelihood of succeeding. And then he went on to dominate college in his freshman year. And then he went on to not play in college the year after because of COVID. And this year, dominating college again. He's a Hobie Baker finalist, and he's going to be on Team USA in the Olympics. Really impressed with his play. He's undersized, not the greatest skater in the world, but agile and a really good playmaker. So it's it's a long road ahead for these undersized guys who aren't the fastest skaters in the world. But I like what he can do with the puck on his stick. I think he's a creative playmaker. And production is the best predictor we have right now of the stats that are publicly available. And his point production, when you adjust for the league, has been absolutely phenomenal. So big fan of him. Least favorite prospect that everyone's talking about. <sighs> is everyone talking about Joseph Wall? I don't know. No, they were before. <laughs> yeah, he was a thing. He was a thing. I mean, goalie prospects are kind of random in general. 
and I like Matthew Nyes, so I don't want to I don't want to diss Matthew Nyes on this podcast. Can I can I piggyback with you and say Nick Robertson? I think just I think uh, Joseph Wall is a legit one because okay. I, I think people were hype on him. I think people are still like trade Morazic and you just have Wall as your backup. I think that's a thought that people have. He hasn't had a save percentage above 900 in the AHL. And I mean, we, we've seen guys with bad AHL numbers go on to be good NHL goalies. Goaltending such a random position and context really matters. And if you have bad context in the AHL, you have a bad team in front of you, then you come up to the NHL and there's a good system in front of you, it can make a huge difference. But uh, despite him being dominant in the NCAA, haven't seen it yet in the AHL. So I don't know how much I trust Joseph Wall to make it to the next level. I don't know how I trust how much I trust any goalie at all. So that would be more my reasoning than it is his individual ability. That's completely fair. All right. And with that, let's get out of here. We'll be back next week to talk about the Leafs. Have a good week, everybody. Everyone is looking at me. Time is running and we're down by three. Look inside yourself. What do you see? The pain is in your mind. No, nothing stops me. Everyone is looking at me. Time is running and we're down by three. Look inside yourself. I know what I see. Do you have the gun?